Oh, welcome to Legend Lore 2nd Edition, where we talk about Pathfinder 2nd Edition. I'm Jess. I'm a tabletop RPG freelancer and frequent contributor to the Pathfinder and Starfinder games. I've been playing tabletop and live-action role-playing games for a little over 20 years, and I've worked in the industry for about five, writing for two dozens of Paizo products. I played Zidani, the Azimar Druid, on the Valiant Actual Play podcast, and I'm a cast member on the Tavern Rats podcast, a new Pathfinder 2 actual play show we're putting together for the No Direction Network. And I'm Lauren, and despite the number of episodes that we've already recorded together, Jess, I'm only just now realizing that together we have about 40 years doing, throwing D20s and, and writing crazy things for in the fantasy genre. I have also contributed to multiple Pathfinder things, blogs and podcasts, mostly, but I've freelanced a little bit, and I'm currently an extremely overworked and exhausted PhD student in the field of animal intelligence. And this week, I hope your claws are sharpened and your teeth are ready, because we are creating monsters in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Now, just because we know a lot about what we're talking about when it comes to Pathfinder, we do want to remind you before we get started that we're not providing official answers. We're here to offer advice, and you can use that advice however you like. Just remember that the official word from Paizo is the only official ruling. But your game is also your game, so you should do whatever works best for your table. But I bet that what works best for your table is probably going to involve adversaries, or antagonists, something to challenge the players, right? And anyone can open up the bestiary and say, here are some goblins. And you can play some really interesting stories by having the PCs tackle things out of the different monster books, which means that sometimes you're going to need a monster that's a little bit more specific to your situation. Sometimes you need a monster that Paisel just hasn't made yet. And monsters are cool. And creating monsters are fun. Thus, you might find yourself in a position where you need to write a monster. Creating your own monsters is great practice as well if you want to write new content for Pathfinder 2 in general. Because a lot of the different rules and aspects of the system come together in what makes a monster a monster. So once you have used the creature building rules and created a monster, you're going to have experience with writing new actions, writing reactions, writing other creature abilities, and the familiarity that you've gained working with the traits in Pathfinder 2, the degrees of success and the action economy is all going to set you up to use your skills in other parts of the game, like writing new class feats, writing new archetypes, or even writing new spells. So if you're interested in getting into the tabletop industry, self-publishing a monster that you've written can definitely help. Even just posting it online in a blog turns the monster that you've created into a sample of your work that you can share with others. You know, Jess, I remember way back in the day, if somebody wanted to break into the RPG industry, Paizo had a whole thing going, like this whole contest where you could submit your work and show them that, you know, you're a great writer and that you can cut it. And you typically end up with like a writing contract after that, you know, at least some freelance work, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so then that went away for a while, but 
I don't know. What was that called? What was that called? RPG, RPG, RPG Shining Star? RPG Superstar. Uh, Paizo isn't running it anymore, but Roll for Combat is. Roll for Combat is currently running. Uh, battle, uh, is currently running RPG Superstar as a way for you to showcase a monster that you've created. You can win prizes, and all of the winning monsters submitted to the contest are also going to be published in a new Battle Zoo book at the end of the contest. Now this episode, we want to talk about monster creation in a way that any GM can use for Pathfinder 2nd Edition as a timeless entity. But just for fun, we are going to talk a little bit about RPG Superstar, which this year, monster submissions end May 28th. If you're listening to this at the time it records, then you'll have about a month to submit your monster, which should be plenty of time to do a good concept, do a rough draft, and then give it a nice polished pass before you send it off and start getting voted on. We wish you luck! And if you're tuning in after May 28th, you cannot submit a monster for this RPG Superstar. There's always next year. But even if you're not interested in entering RPG Superstar, you still might want to create some monsters for use in your own home game. So why would a custom monster be useful in your game? Why would you go to the effort to create one? I, I approach this from a very narrative standpoint. There's all these great monsters to pick from, and I can go through there like a kid in a candy shop saying, ooh, I want this one, and I want this one, and I want this one. But I also like times in the story where this isn't one of these monsters. This is a monster specific to the thing. This isn't just a strangler. Do we have stranglers in 2E? I'm drawing a blank right now on all our 2E monsters. This isn't a strangler. This is the Gobtown Bobbler. There's no Gobtown Bob. Jess, I should have made a Gobtown Bobbler as my monster. Okay, listeners. You still can. We are go- at the end of this episode. We are going to present you two monsters that we have made, and I am now regretting every decision that's kept me from making the Gobtown Bobbler. Yes, that is why you might make your own monsters. Is it's unique to that situation? Outside of Gobtown, you're not going to find the Bobbler, which is why it's not in a Paizo book. So you need to make it for your PCs. Yeah, there's lots of situations where you might find a creature in one of the books that has the kinds of abilities that you want to put up, that you want to put your players up against, but maybe there's something about it that just makes it not quite right for the story that you're telling in your campaign or the environment your players are in. So you can take existing creatures and just kind of tweak them and retheme them. Uh, maybe give them uh, another unique ability or change some of their resistances and weaknesses around. For example, you could take a fire elemental like the salamander and you could turn that into an ice creature. I do this all the time. This is easily my go-to method because it's like the quickest way to get where you need to be, right? You know, we have we have the stat block for like fire scorpions, right? But you could easily just say yes but this is a weird land of psionic creatures and you could just say it's not fire damage it's mental damage yeah another thing another thing you can do to quickly modify a creature instead of making an entirely new one is if there's a creature that you want to put at this point in your campaign but maybe it's too high level or too low level 
you can use the creature building rules to just tweak the creature's armor class, damage, and other statistics to use them at a different level. Archives of Nethys even makes this real easy because you can just click the weak or the elite button and it'll automatically adjust the stat line for you. Yeah, another thing you can do to customize creatures uh, is you can change them around just to ensure that they challenge or highlight the unique abilities of your specific player character party. For example, oozes uh, are mindless, but you could customize an ooze into a new intelligent ooze variant if you have a group of PCs that are heavily specialized in spells or actions with the mental trait and you don't want to deny them the ability to use those. Or you could add a new weakness to that ooze tailored to what's available to your player characters to counterbalance if the immunity to mental damage would be uniquely challenging for your group. So what you're saying is, let's just use a hypothetical GM at random. Let's just say, let's pretend this GM's name is Alex, picked at random. Let's say, let's say Alex, if you knew that your party had a lot of, un, had some undead PCs in it who have negative healing, Alex, maybe you might want to stop throwing monsters that only deal negative damage at them, Alex. Maybe well. you change it to be... I don't know, positive damage or apple damage or literally anything else except what heals me. Whoever this GM Alex is, no idea. Now, what role, though, do monsters play in your game? I feel like this is going to inform how you might make your monster. And at the surface level, one might think the monster is there to be a punching bag that can take hit points away from the PCs and have its own hit points taken away until the magical XP sauce comes raining out. Jess, yeah. I get a feeling that's not the whole story. Yeah, no. Um, so in your Pathfinder game, you want to be able to challenge your player characters and put them in situations where they have like an adversarial force that they can be challenged by and overcome. And... The monsters in Pathfinder 2 are what's going to appear in every combat encounter that you run. They are a major way the player characters are challenged in the game. They are the major adversarial force, and they appear in most sessions of Pathfinder 2 that you're going to run. Playing the monsters is also how a Pathfinder 2 game master interacts with the combat rules of Pathfinder. So good monsters make gameplay more fun for the game master. And once the players have fought a monster and found out all of its weaknesses and like solved the puzzle of how they want to defeat it, it no longer presents the same fun and the same challenge as it did when it was a mystery and they hadn't yet defeated it. So new monsters are always needed in each encounter to keep the gameplay fresh, to change the way the player characters are challenged, and also to create opportunities for different PCs to shine, depending on what the best way to defeat a given monster might be. Now, as part of making monsters, I've always found that it's really important to have a look at the precedent that's been set by Paizo. To look at some of the material that's already there. You might be reinventing the wheel, but even if you're not, even if what you're doing is completely unique and fresh, it's a good idea to have a look at what Paizo's already made so you get a feeling for what's going to fit within the system of the game pretty well. And there's a lot of great resources for this. My personal favorite is the Archives of Nethys, where if I want to make a monster that has a confusion effect, 
I'm just going to search for confusion on Archives of Nethys and then filter by the creatures. And I'm going to see what other creatures are already doing with that. So that, A, I know kind of the rough power scales and kind of how this should interact. And then, B, how I can invert that with the knowledge. A tactical inversion. I kind of feel like you have to know how something works before you can break it in an artistic way. Yeah, you can also get all of the creatures in Foundry, too. If you have uh, the Pathfinder 2 game system in Foundry, you're going to find all of the creatures uh, in the compendium packs for free. Uh, there are token packs available for sale that will add art to them, but just for the monster rules, you can just browse all of them in Foundry. Of course, we have the Bestiary 1, Bestiary 2, Bestiary 3, all classics in their own right very good books the themed books are great if you know you want that particular kind of campaign it's a no-brainer to purchase but even if you just need like one specifically powerful undead you might grab the book of the dead if you need an elemental game i hear rage of elements is gonna be a banger and of course for particularly mythic monsters we have monsters of myth from the lost omens line yeah, Adventure Path volumes also include creatures that are themed to that particular Adventure Path in the back matter. So if you wanted to run a game that hits some of the same themes as an Adventure Path, uh, or is set in like the same region, you can also check out the monsters that were added for that AP. And so all of the Pathfinder, all of the Pathfinder books, you can buy PDFs, you can buy physical copies. And then the books are also available through Pathfinder Nexus if you want something that offers an experience similar to what you would see with D&D Beyond. Now, how do you feel, Jess, about the encounter building rules in Pathfinder 2? Because I, I have an opinion about the encounter building rules. I feel like at the very beginning of second edition, I wonder if the devs realized how deadly the system was that they were designing. And I've always I've always thought that you should just take it down one notch when you're looking at it. If the encounter says it's says it's moderate, treat it as severe. You know, what do you think about that? I actually think the encounter building rules are really good. The most important thing that you have to remember about them, though, is that the encounter building rules assume that you are entering into a fight fully healed up. So if you are designing your session where you aren't going to give the player characters enough time to fully heal between encounters, like if there's going to be waves or like uh, part the attrition is like part of the story that you're telling, you can't actually balance those as completely separate encounters. Well, Jess, you've got me convinced. I'm ready to learn how to create a monster the Pathfinder 2nd Edition way. Yeah, so one of the great things about creating your own monsters in Pathfinder 2nd Edition is that all of the creature building rules are available in the Game Mastery Guide, which means they're also available for free on Archives of Nephis. And these are going to give you tables that give you benchmarks for how much damage a creature of a certain level should deal, what its AC should be, what kind of skill bonuses it should have. And these numbers are the same numbers that are used for creating the creatures that appear in the official books, in the bestiaries, in the Book of the Dead. I know that 
secret uh, monster building rules are kind of a point of contention in some other systems. But in Pathfinder 2, you are getting the same numbers that the devs use. And even though they're called rules, they're really more like guidelines, you know? Like it says only give your monster like one extreme trait from this category, right? Mm -hmm. But if you feel, if you know your party, if you know how the balance should be, if you want to give them two, you go right ahead. It's Have an extra extreme as a treat. Just know that your players might hate you for that. <laughs> Yeah, you can do some different things when you are creating a monster specifically for like a specific group of player characters versus creating something for publication for anyone to use. Because when you're creating something that is specifically for your players, you know what they are going to be particularly well suited to handle and what kinds of challenges will be that they'll have a, a, an easier or a harder time overcoming. And so you might know that... Uh, if the creature has like certain immunities, that will be something that will be fun for them to discover, but they'll be able to overcome it without too much difficulty. Whereas uh, if you are creating a monster just for anyone to use, you don't know what types of damage that party can do. When we first decided to make monsters as part of this episode, I really wanted a way to do it easily. Like how Pathbuilder makes all of these different PC builds easy to make. And it's fun. I can lay on the couch and I can make PCs. And I loved when you showed me the Create a Monster tool on RPGSuperstar.com. That's an accidental plug. I legitimately used it without any intention to submit this monster just because it's a useful tool. You lay out, it gives you examples based on if you want this skill to be of moderate difficulty for the level, here's an example of, of the ballpark it should be in. And it does that for the whole thing. But the reason I like it the most, and the reason I'll probably keep using this, is just how it formats what you have input in the Paizo style, right? It looks like it belongs in Bestiary 4 or something. I, I think it's great. Yeah, it's a really great tool. And so you can open up the Game Mastery Guide or the Archives of Nethys Creature Building Rules and look at all of the tables. But if you go to the Create a Monster tool on RPGSuperstar.com uh, and you input the level of your creature, it's going to put in like little tips that tell you, like when you go to type in your AC, it's going to tell you the information from the tables just right there in the tool so that you don't have to refer back and forth. You can just look at the Create a Monster tool and it'll give you all of the information that you need. Personally, I liked using them both. I would use the Archives of Nethys and I would use Create a Monster just to kind of organize it. And, and there was really nice synergy between them. There were some times, though, when I disagreed with the recommendation of this RPG Superstar tool, but... I don't think you've looked at my monster that much yet, Jess. You might see it and say, yeah, Lauren, your disagreements are dumb. I'm really interested to see what you think. Yeah, I'm excited for uh, when we show each other our monsters. But back to the listener's monsters. The first thing you have to do when you're creating a monster is you want to have a concept in mind for what it is that you even want to make. So like, what themes do you want your creature to evoke? What are you naming it? How are you naming its abilities? Uh, you want to know what type of creature it's even going to be. Is it undead? Is it an elemental? Is it a fae? Is it an ooze? 
You also want to think about how does it challenge the player characters? The creature building rules have creature roadmaps available that will guide you for the kinds of choices you want to make for like if you want high AC or moderate AC or low AC or high damage or moderate damage or low damage. And so you can pick the different roadmaps like the brute or the skirmisher or the spellcaster. And so you want to think about do any of these roadmaps fit your character or do any of these roadmaps fit your creature? Or are you going to want to do something that takes inspiration from the way that they balance the different, like the AC against the HP, but not use one of the roadmaps exactly? And then you also want to think about what kind of encounters the creature that you're building is going to appear in. Like, is it large? Does it need to be in a big room? Does it fly? Should it be outside? Does it burrow? Should it be encountered in, like, caves? Would you encounter it in an area with a lot of traps? Those kinds of things. Concepting a monster for me is really similar to any other of the fantasy or Pathfinder concepting things I'm doing. When I'm making a PC, when, when I decided to make a monster, pretty much when I'm deciding to make any type of creative thing, I can have the same process. I, I don't ever really know what I want to do going in, but if I do, that's fine. But I always recommend when you need to do something creative that you just brainstorm some creative vomit. You just up out some different things that are interesting to you, kind of at random. And then you sort through those thoughts. You see if there's anything you can use, if there's anything interesting that you would want to develop, right? And I, I, I'm going to talk a little bit more about what my process was uh, for, for this one. You know, I didn't build the Gobtown Bobbler. So, you know, maybe I'll concept the Gobtown Bobbler real quick. Let's yeah. see. The Gobtown Bobbler, what themes do I want this creature to evoke? What is its name? What what? Well, we know the name, the themes of the Gobtown Bobbler. This has to be an aquatic creature, you know? It, it has something to do with bubbles. Maybe even, like, its cry is distinctive, like the, like the wild sound that it makes. You know it's around by the bobbling. By like, wait, what, what's a bobbling sound like? That's the Gobtown Bobbler. That's when you know you're in trouble. <laughs> it's interesting to me that the Gobtown Bobbler is the bobbler and not the bubbler. And I wonder if this is an area where you could have like a play on words where it has something to do with either stealing, like bobbing things, or yeah. if it has something to do with like baubles and little trinkets. Yeah, yeah, little, little baubles. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I picture, uh, and then as part of concepting, I might just throw out some other thing. Hmm, maybe it's, maybe I get the feeling it could be kind of frog-like. But with, but with teeth and with features of like a deep sea creature. So oh. you know, like 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 yeah, like like the big fanged anglerfish, but like as a frog, you know. Yeah, honestly, I picture that too for the Gobtown Bobbler. I think it's a very evocative name. Like we're both on the same page for what this thing looks like. We're on the same page. See, and this is concepting. You know, what type of challenge does it do the PC? You just feel this stuff out. You just throw ideas out there and you see how they feel, right? I feel like this could be an, uh, an ambush predator. You never know where the Gobtown Bobbler is going to strike. And then suddenly, the big teeth, like a cage descending upon you, and then you're gone. You have been bobbled. Yeah, yeah. So once you've concepted your monster, the next thing you want to start doing is looking for creatures that have uh, existing precedent, things that are 
similar to your creature or creatures that are the same creature type. So like if you were creating an aquatic creature, you could look at other aquatic creatures to see if they have uh, similar abilities that you can take wording from or uh, like how you would format the, uh, the, the swim speed or the other aquatic features, the water breathing or immunities or resistances that you would want to take from similar creatures. And then you also want to look at the traits that similar creatures have so you can figure out what traits your creature and your creature's abilities should all have. This can also help you figure out how the creature should play. If I know that I want the bobbler to be an ambush play style or an ambush challenge for the PCs, I'm going to go look at some of the other ambush creatures that Paizo's already written to get an idea on how they have been fleshed out or on how I can change the formula to make it a specific bobble ambush. Yeah, and this is also a great step to make sure that you're not accidentally creating something that already exists. So easy to do. Yeah. Now, how are we going to do abilities, though? Because I feel like this is where it's maybe the most nebulous. If you look at the creature building guidelines in the GMG, there's all these tables that give you all these numbers that you can choose from and sort through to really feel confident in your balance. But creating abilities, man, that one feels feels a lot more nebulous. Yeah, this is the area where like your your creativity and your just your game design and game mastering sensibilities are just kind of going to have to come out and guide you for what what feels right, what is correct in like the art of creating this creature. Uh, because there's no like there's no right or wrong answer for how many. Uh, abilities a single creature should have available to them or necessarily how many actions a given ability should cost to use because you can balance an ability to make it stronger or weaker depending on how many actions you want it to cost or how many actions the ability costs could inform the level of the creature as well. But the the most important thing about creating the abilities is that you want the way that you write your creature to be like an instruction manual for the game master so that they understand how to run the creature, how to play the creature. So you don't want to give the creature multiple abilities that it would use in the same situation. You Like if it's going to have multiple strikes, they should have different traits. Like it's common to have one strike that does like a lot of damage and then another strike that does less damage but has the agile trait which informs the game master that if they're making two strikes, they use the one that does more damage first and then the agile one second. The trait placement of the agile trait is what instructs the game master and what you intended in your design and how these strikes differentiate themselves. But there could be other traits as well, like an attack could have the grab ability, you could have the trip trait, there, there's a lot Where was I? But there's other ways you can differentiate uh, the creature's different strikes too. For example, if it grabs, if it trips, other things like that, or if some of them are ranged strikes versus melee strikes. A classic example then is tying specific things to that creature with only a specific attack. Example, the scorpion. You get hit by the pincers, you might get a grab. You get hit by the tail, you're probably dealing with some poison. 
and then look for a fun way to create a synergy. What if you have a creature grabbed, now you can activate this ability? This is a bit of foreshadowing for later. <laughs> I do like to do the create ability section kind of last for myself. I say last. Nothing is truly last. Because I'll look at the traits that I have created. Do any of these traits inspire an ability? The immunities and resistance, are there any interesting interactions there that I could create? When I look at other creatures that exist in the area, how are they doing something similar differently? What can I do unique to this monster but different from them? And I sometimes go back and forth with this. I'll, I'll start creating an ability. I'll go change something up higher in the stat block. I'll come back down the ability. And my design process then is I'm going back and forth, back and forth. And at every step of this process... Just for my own benefit, I'm expanding on the concept section in my own head. I'm fleshing out the lore of the monster. I'm fleshing out the lore of the PC. And that then informs more of this design process for how you're making the monster, how you're building the PC. Yeah, so another thing that you want to be on the lookout for with the creature's actions that you're creating is you want to take a step back from the creature and think, if I were playing this creature and it has the same three actions as anyone else in Pathfinder 2, how do the different abilities that I've given it fit together into a three-action turn? Like, if you've given the creature a bunch of one-action abilities, how many of these are actually good to use together? If you've created multiple two-action abilities, do they compete with each other for which one is the better option? Does it feel bad to have two two-action abilities that you can't use on the same turn? Are there some of the abilities that work best if the creature is also making a strike or if it's moving around? Uh, does the creature have skills like stealth or intimidate that it might be using against the players that might also be taking up its actions? And this is related to, does your creature cast spells? Mm -hmm. how, many, how many spells should you even give a creature? Yeah, if you're creating a spellcasting creature, you want to honestly err on the side of less spells rather than more. In Pathfinder 1, it was very common if you were creating a uh, spellcasting creature because creatures kind of followed the player character creation rules. So you would create your monster and then it would have like the same number of spells as a player character. And so when the GM opens up this creature, it has this massive spell list. Some of them are good in combat, maybe some of them aren't. And now the GM has to look up all of these spells, figure out which ones are good to use in this encounter. It's a lot of extra work on the game master. So when a you're big chore. Yeah, when you're creating a spellcasting creature in Pathfinder 2, you want less spells, not more. You only want to include the spells that the game master will actually use. You don't want to include multiple spells that would be used like in the same situation because then the game master is like looking up both spells, trying to compare which one is better. Like just include the one that works best with the creature. You don't need to include all these alternatives. And I keep also, scrolling down and looking at my monster to see <laughs> if I have if I have made these mistakes. And I think so far I'm still good. Yeah. Another thing you want to consider though. Uh, because monsters are not built the same way as player characters, when you're looking at a damage spell like a fireball or like a ray of frost or something like that, especially something that is going to make a spell attack rule, you want to really think about 
is it actually worth it to make the game master look up this spell in a secondary location? Or is this just a ranged attack that deals like elemental damage? Like, should this just be the monster's uh, ranged attack? Or should this be a two action ability that I'm just putting on the monster and it can just like create, uh, it, it can just like call down a, a strike of lightning. Like that's just a thing that this monster does. Like, does it need to be a spell? Do you need to send the game master looking up a spell in order to run this creature? Some spells are worth that because it would take up like so much of, like so much space to include the full spell in the creature or the spell is just like particularly thematic. It goes with the creature. Other spells aren't really worth it. Other spells, it's better to just have like a, a ranged attack that is like a fire ray. Interesting, interesting. I'm still looking at my spell selection. I gave my, my monsters a spell cast. I'm still thinking, hmm, hmm, hmm. Okay, I think I'm okay. I think I'm good. I think I'm good. <laughs> you want to team me up for this next one? I'm trying to. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm trying to. You can just like pose this to me as a question. Creating love, what makes a creature high level? Okay. So we have to talk about the power level of the monsters that we're gonna make. Obviously, it's really fun to make, you know, real high level monsters, right? To be real powerful things, but we, we don't always need that. But the real question then is, is how do you tell when you need a high level, when you need to be lower? Like the only, my, my kind of rule of thumb is that I look at the levels in, in terms of like an adventurer. I've always assumed that a level three adventurer is one who has completed their introductory training. You know, level one, level two, you're in fighter school. <laughs> level three, you've graduated fighter school, right? So that that's how I... And then, you know, level six, you're probably, you know, you're knowledgeable, right? Level nine, you might be an advent, uh, a veteran, and, and so on and so forth. So you get to level 20 when you're, like, the hossest of the hoss, right? Is, so, but how do you pair that? How does, it, how, does it, how does that work on the creature side, on the monster side? Well, ulti ultimately, like, in terms of lore... Uh, when you're creating a high-level creature, you're going to write the lore for it that explains how it's high-level or how it's powerful. Like, there are low-level angels and high-level angels, and the lore of that angel is going to, like, back up and reinforce its concept. And then there's also, uh, like, creatures that are kind of the classics of the genre, right? Like, you don't really want to fight a dragon in your first encounter, but... If you build up to fighting a dragon when you're like 12th, 15th level, it's going to feel like really good and rewarding that like, yeah, I'm fighting the dragon, the big one, right? I am now experiencing disappointment that in I've been playing two, second edition Pathfinder since its playtest, and I have never fought a dragon in it. Well, it's not always, uh, it's not always the right time for a dragon. Yeah, but... There's been I have I have now had a lot of times and it has never been the right time for the dragon mm -hmm. and I want to fight a dragon. The Pathfinder two, 
The Pathfinder 2 dragons are also particularly well designed, and if you look at them, they have a lot of lessons that they can teach you about writing high-level monsters as well. So the, uh, the Pathfinder 2 dragon, uh, the, the, the abilities that you want to like really look at that are going to teach you the most about creature design are Draconic Frenzy and the iconic breath weapon and the way that the breath weapon is integrated into this dragon. Is this, is it, are you going to have a talk about action economy? I, yeah, this is the action economy oh, talk. So I love the action economy talk. Yeah, so all, like everyone in, so everyone in Pathfinder 2, player characters and monsters alike, have three actions. But one of the things that makes the dragons particularly deadly is their draconic frenzy, where for two actions, they can make two claw strikes and one wing strike. So they can spend two actions to make three attacks. And they still suffer multiple attack penalty. So they still, you know, that, that third strike is still kind of a risk. But the play style of rolling all of these dice and kind of like hoping for a crit on your last attack reinforces the other, the other abilities that this dragon has. Like their draconic momentum where they recharge their breath weapon whenever they score a critical hit on a strike. So because this Draconic Frenzy lets them make more strikes with their actions, they're more likely to roll a crit and they're more likely to recharge their breath weapon. And this way, this is the key for why it works for the dragon that their breath weapon is two actions and their Draconic Frenzy is also two actions because they don't really compete with each other. When your breath weapon is recharged, you want to use your breath weapon. You want to maybe move around the battlefield and you want to breathe fire or acid or lightning or whatever it is on the player characters. But then your breath weapon takes 1d4 rounds to recharge. And in the rounds in between, you are maximizing the number of strikes that you are making to maximize the chances that you will get that crit to recharge your breath weapon and use it again. Yeah, this is my first time taking a good hard look at the dragon mm -hmm. stat block in second edition. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of intimidated. Not gonna lie. Like this is this is really something. It's really well designed. And one of the things that I'm looking at this that I like the most is that I only see three spells for mm -hmm. the adult red dragon. Mm -hmm. Like they used to just be look, you're a dragon. And you're you're fighting a dragon and it's got like a trillion spells and it, mm -hmm. and it's got all these a trillion attacks and it's just too much stuff. But this seems actually pretty reasonable. You've got yeah. you've got a jaws and a tail. Mm -hmm. Neither of those strikes are agile. You have a claw and a wing. Both of those strikes are agile. So you get a little bit of options there. Mm -hmm. You've got four spells or th three spells here: suggestion, detect magic, read aura, breath weapon, frenzy, momentum. Boom! That's the dragon. Yeah, and the reason there's so many different strikes and such a variety of strikes is because they all have uh, slightly different traits. Like some of them are agile, some of them aren't. Uh, the jaws strike does fire uh, damage in addition to the piercing. And then they also have different reach. So the dragon can make like its tail strike from further away, whereas it has to be closer to use its claws. And so... That helps to, again, 
inform the game master which of these should you be using in any given situation. So like because this dragon has like these different reach values, like the wings are 15 feet, but the claws are 10 feet, when the dragon uses its draconic frenzy, it can make those strikes against different creatures as long as they're within either 10 feet or 15 feet. Yeah, this is really cool. I'm loving yeah. this. But then the dragon also has a sidebar that goes with it, uh, the uh, the spellcasting dragon sidebar. I'm looking this. That, like, this is so neat. Yeah, like, so like if you want the experience of the uh, the, the accomplished spellcaster dragon, you can still have that experience if you as a GM want to have that experience. So you can add these other spells onto the dragon, but it's not it's not necessary. If you don't want to run a spellcasting dragon, you don't have to worry about all of those. They're, they're an option. They're not necessary. You don't have to look up all these spells. Another thing you're going to notice when you look at this dragon is the names that all of its strikes have. It has jaws, it has claw, it has tail, it has wing. It doesn't have bite, it doesn't have slash, it doesn't have slam. And this is because strike names in Pathfinder 2 should be nouns. The name of the strike, the type of strike that it is, should be the thing that is being used to make that strike. So if it has a weapon, then you put melee sword or melee axe. If it's biting, you put melee jaws. I hypothesize that this decision is based on the fact that there are now a lot of different actions that creatures, especially PCs though, can take using one particular tool. And so if you, if you put jaws and you describe all of these different attacks that a fighter might be able to use with their jaws, it doesn't have to be bite, right? So I get it, but mummies not having the slam just feels weird to me. Like, I always think of, you know, these powerful undeads grabbing their their fists together and slamming them down because the undead always had a slam attack. Yeah, slam is a, a funny one. It was actually particularly uh, particularly difficult to replace and get out of the system. Like, for, for bite, you replace it with jaws, that's easy. For, like, a, a claw slash, you put claw, that's easy. But there are certain creatures, particularly like oozes, that used to have slams that were kind of like difficult to figure out, like, okay, so what is this thing even attacking with? And so some of the oozes, they could have like a, a pseudopod is what they have now. Yeah, that one but, works okay. Yeah, but if you look up the gelatinous cube, you will see that the gelatinous cube's melee strike is... Uh, that's the best one. The it's best one. so good. It is one of the most delightful things in Pathfinder 2. The gelatinous cubes melee strike is cube face. I attack with cube face. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's the, great. One of the benefits of using nouns like this is that when you are referring back to other uh, abilities within an ability, like for, for instance, Draconic Frenzy, the dragon makes two claw strikes and one wing strike. Th that sentence is... Made po and sentences like it are made possible because the strike name is a noun, right? So it can make uh, two claw strikes. Whereas if that was called like slash, 
then you're not gonna say uh, two strike slashes or two strike bites, right? Like the, the sentence construction of referring back to other abilities becomes really awkward. Whereas with a noun, you can always write out a sentence like the dragon strikes with its claw. The dragon strikes with its tail. And ju I just want to point out for folks who are a little newer to second edition, strike in Pathfinder is a very specific kind of attack. It's the default. You are just doing a hit with mm -hmm. the attack. And I say this, it sounds like a pedantic thing, but there's a lot of special kinds of strikes, right? But they're not called strike. They're called power attack, which is make a strike and it does such. So the reason this says make a claw strike is so you can't use something like power attack here, mm -hmm. right? You use a claw and you do a basic strike. Exactly. But even power attack says that you make a strike. It refers back to that base ability of strike, mm -hmm. which is what mm -hmm. lets you build abilities on top of each other. So Draconic Frenzy uh, gives you additional ways that you can make strikes. Power Attack gives you additional ways that you can make strikes. Other abilities might give you additional ways you can make strikes or uh, ways to make more strikes or ways to move and strike. Uh, different ways to just combine the separate abilities into into one so that they can all refer back to each other so that you're not writing out all of the rules for how attacks are made every time you want to have an ability that lets you uh, make make an attack and that's like the design process behind most of second edition mm -hmm. is just to streamline things into components that are easier to manipulate mm -hmm. and easier to easier to reference and easier to describe and easier to build up on it's like Legos, right? Mm -hmm. Legos are easy to build because you have cube and you have long cube. And sometimes you have short long cube. It's <laughs> You don't have all these weird looking fiddly bits. I mean, you do, but they're not like the bulk of it. Like mm -hmm. the bulk of it are these, you know, these cubes. But all right, Jess, that's enough talking about creating monsters. It is time to monster ourselves. Show us the, let's show off the inner monsters. Yeah. Do Jess, you want to go? I took a. Do you want to go first, or should I go first? I want you to go first, because I took a quick look over this, and I, I feel the theme of it, and I'm kind of digging it. So for my creature, I created the cat, which is... Cat. Uh, listeners, you don't with know this. With a Q-U? Listeners, uh, you might not know this, but there is a cat with Lauren right now. Oh, can you see this in the camera? I can. She's being so annoying. <laughs> She's so good. So a little she is cat. a very sweetheart. So yes, I created the cat, the Q-U-A-T-T. And what this is, is this is a tiny little gremlin type fae who is the original cat, like the beta version cat that was created in the first world. So like oh before God. all of the mortals were created on the material plane, when there was just like the first world as the first creation, this is the cat that was created in the first world. In the beginning. Yeah. There was light and cats. darkness and cat. And cat, yes. So gremlins are a type of fae that like create mischief. Like there are gremlins that uh, live on boats and like slash the sails and create uh, misfortune and little mishaps and accidents on boats. There are gremlins that like live in your house and they destroy the foundation of your house and they make your house collapse. The cat is a gremlin 
that creates mischief and misfortune, but it's just, you know, invited into the home by humans, and it just creates mischief right in front of them, and they're just like, yeah, that's the cat. It does that. It'd be that way. They just accept it. It lives in their home, like it creates it. trouble, and they're just like, yeah, this thing lives with me. That's the Which cat. Which is probably why you gave it chaotic neutral. <laughs> yeah, it is chaotic neutral. Uh, what inspired... Uh, I was inspired to create this creature because... I mean, I just love cats. How could you not? Yeah. I, 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 I tell everybody that even though, like, you, if you see me out in public... A, quit stalking me. B, I will be with my with my dog because me and my dog are inseparable. Mm-hmm. But I tell people, I'm not actually a dog person. I'm a cat and German shepherd person. I'm just crazy about German shepherds. I just love them. But another dog come up with its sloppy face and its, and its floppy ears, eh, that's okay. I mean, you're a fine dog. I guess I'll pet you, but you're not going to make my heart sing like a German shepherd does. I don't know. I just grew up with them. Yeah, dog people have all of, like, their dog breeds, and, you know, you have a dog, and you describe it in terms of the, the dog breed that it is. Cats are, cats are just cats. Cats are cats? Cats are cats. This, Unless this they're is, sphinx. Well, I mean, there are cat breeds, I guess, but, you know, I don't, I don't mess with that. I just go to, you know, the cat shelter, find a feral cat, let it live inside my house. That's what this is. This was yeah. a rescue kitty. Yeah. Listeners don't know. I don't think I've ever talked about her. This is Zoe. And she's orange, and she's extremely tiny, mm-hmm. and her tail's a little bit too small, but she thinks she's a dog, and she's very sweet. Yeah. So, my process for creating the cat as a Pathfinder 2 creature, like I said, it's a gremlin. So, I started with looking up the other gremlins and figuring out, like, okay, gremlins have dark vision, so I'll give it dark vision. Gremlins have weakness to cold iron so i gave it weakness to cold iron and then i modeled kind of the skills that it has and uh the ability scores and stuff partly on you know what i think is good for a cat but also partly on what gremlins are like as a a category of creatures and then i also looked up some of the other cats in pathfinder 2 like the uh the leopard and i pulled a couple abilities out of the leopard to use on the cat Like, I pulled out Pounce, so it can stride and make a strike at the end of its movement for one action. And it has Sneak Attack, like the other cats in Pathfinder 2 have. Now now that I know your concept, Mm -hmm. I'm understanding the names that you picked for your abilities a lot more. Uh And uh it's very, it's very, it's very clever. Yeah, yeah. So, the role that the cat has is kind of like a a rogue-type sneaky creature. It has, like, stealth, it has the sneak attack, uh, and then it also has a couple of spells, because And you did pick to make a level one, or Mm -hmm. a creature one cat, so that this isn't something vexing the highest of heroes, unless they're looking to find the items misplaced in their house. Yeah, yeah. Pathfinder already has uh, the the Akashi, the uh, like the black cat fay, which is level six. So I didn't want to be competing conceptually with the cat she. So I made the cat creature one because the gremlins as a creature category are largely uh, lower level creatures. Uh, but so I was saying um, the creature roadmaps, the one that I chose to use 
for the cat because I wanted it to be kind of like sneaky roguish, but I also wanted to give it some like magical abilities is I used the magical striker roadmap to uh, help guide which things I want, like how high I wanted the AC to be, how high I wanted the damage to be and stuff like that. So the magical striker roadmap has high attack and high damage, moderate to high spell DCs, and then either a scattering of innate spells or prepared or spontaneous spells up to half the creature's level rounded up minus one. So it has some cantrips uh, and a first level spell. It can cast Charm, Daze, and Ghost Sound. And then, so to get into some of the cat's abilities, uh, I'm going to start here with uh, Cunningly Cute. Creatures the cat has charmed, because it has charm as a spell, are flat-footed to the cat's melee strikes. So that gives the cat a second way that it can do its sneak attack damage. Because the cat has uh, negative one strength. Its jaws and claw strikes don't do that much damage. Like the, um, the Magical Striker roadmap says to do uh, high damage values. But the cat has 1d8 minus one damage that it does with its jaws. That, that does not quite hit where the high damage is. But if you factor in the sneak attack, the added 1d4 sneak attack, now it's starting to be in range for the amount of damage that you would want a magical striker dealing like the high damage threshold to do. So the cat can do its sneak attack either because it's hidden with its stealth or with its cunningly cute because it has someone charmed. And now the charm spell ends when, um, when you take a hostile action against the charmed creature. So the cat has a reaction called cat's purr which is a reaction with the emotion and mental traits. The trigger is a charm spell cast by the cat ends because it used a hostile action against the target and the target is within five feet. And then the effect of cat's purr, the cat rubs against the triggering creature's legs, purring loudly. The cat strides up to 10 feet, which must include the space of the triggering creature and attempts a deception check against the triggering creature's will DC. On a success, the cat regains its innate charm spell so it can cast it an additional time. And on a critical success, the cat regains their charm spell, but in addition, if the cat casts its charm spell on the triggering creature before the end of the cat's next turn, the triggering creature does not get the plus four circumstance bonus on the will save due to the cat having attacked it. Hold on now. So this is interesting. So the the cat, you know, shows you how cute it is. Mm-hmm. You're charmed. Mm-hmm. Then it then it's gives you the scritch mm-hmm. with sneak attack because yeah. it's mean. Yeah. But you forgot as a reaction, look at how cute it is. And if it's so deceptive with look at how cute it is, it can, it can charm you again. Yeah. And if it's extra good at it, you, you don't even see it coming anymore. I mean, that's amazing. That's how it is when you're a cat owner, right? Like the cat just scratches you and you're just like, oh, look at Fluffy. So cute. That, yeah, that, that, that's amazing. You have, you have condensed the essence of cat into a single gremlin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the cat, uh, a couple other things I want to highlight about the cat. It has a passive ability leap between worlds, uh, which is 
Cats slip through small hidden places between worlds, allowing them to move in unusual and unexpected ways. The cat can roll an occultism check instead of an athletics check when making a high jump or long jump. Oh my god. That's like, how on earth did you get there? Yeah. That's what that is. Yeah. Magic. Occultism. Magic. That's amazing. And then I also just want to say that the cat strikes. It has its jaws strike that does 1d8 minus 1 piercing. It has its claw strike, which is agile, that does 1d6 minus 1 piercing. And then it also has a ranged attack, Calamitous Yowl, with the agile, auditory, emotion, magical, mental traits, and range 50 feet that does one mental damage. That's amazing. So that is the cat. That's amazing. That's hilarious. Now, if if you were to put in an art order for it, like how would you describe it to the to the artist? Oh, it's a cat. Oh, just a just a normal cat. Cat. I mean, no, it's probably come like on. a particularly gremlin-y cat. It's probably like bipedal, but you know, it can like walk around on all fours. But I mean, it it can also be bipedal. Uh, maybe like a very haunted cat, the way that like the medieval Ooh. cat look where they have the weird eyes oh my god it looks like it comes from a medieval tech manuscript like written in the side like Mm -hmm. chasing Mm -hmm. a piece of cheese or something that's amazing yeah yeah i i oh man i would love to see the art for this all right tell me about your creature lauren okay so i i am presenting to you a creature in that started with as a conglomeration of a bunch of nonsense but as 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 my things often do, not always. I believe it has congealed into something that 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 is that makes sense. In Pathfinder, in in the world of Galarian, there is the Dominion of the Black. These are deep space conquerors. They, they, these are the the eldritch beings from beyond the known realms, and they send out alien entities. They send out little drones known as the Ruchaliks. And the Ruchalks go out. These are the foot soldiers of the Dominion of Black. And they go find mortals. They induce fear in the mortal. Eventually, the mortal gets so scared that they pass out. And then the Ruchalik the will suck all their thoughts and personalities out. Make a copy of them. And then send the thoughts and personalities out to their masters. They're, they're weird. And they're eldritch. And they're Lovecraftian and crazy. And I thought this was really cool because the two inspirations that I picked for my concept, I had no idea what I wanted to do. It's like, all right, let's make a monster. Well, right now I'm playing a game about vampires. So vampires are kind of cool. And, you know, I always love eldritch stuff. So an eldritch vampire is what I'm going with. The Rukokthan is the source of that curse because I have I am presenting to you the Ruspawn. I mean, the lore is that sometimes these Ruchaliks, sometimes they'll pull too much out of the victim and it might leave them dead but with a little bit extra in there maybe oh. a little bit too much of that eldritch magic it it, it resides and the victim is is rises as a rue spawn or a vampire created from the from the, these guys so so Gosh, Jess, you know I went too hard into this, and I even started creating like an entire like fam like creature family called the Rue Cursed 
but I had to stop. You were like, Lauren, this is you're you're trying to write five pages on the stop. So I have so I'm only presenting to you today the Roost Spawn, the lowest level of them. And that was my concept. I wanted an, an eldritch like space like vampire. So then as vampires go, it, it has the traits of vampire and undead. I'm making it neutral evil, but I'm giving it the uh, aberration trait as well because some of that aberrant space energy is still kind of there. But let's see. Let me let me get get on track. Let me see where we are. What did we create? What's the lore? What inspired us? What was our process? Okay. All right, so let's get back on so then I just went down the list. I started looking at, in in the role for combat, in the RPG superstars, just use a template going down the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I picked a pretty normal AC, pretty normal stat line. I went interesting with the abilities, though. For example, as a vampire, does negative healing. But instead of getting fast healing like a vampire spawn would, it has regeneration, five. This way I don't have to write, like, resurrection from a coffin. Right? It just says regeneration. So you can't kill it unless you do the thing that deactivates the regeneration. <laughs> and I have it deactivated by mental damage because mental damage is what put it in the spot in the first place. Right? Mm-hmm. But but this is not a creature that is is weak to mental damage. No, no. It has been damaged far more mentally than you could ever do. So it has resistance to mental five. I don't think I've ever seen a creature like this where it is resistant to its weakness, right? If you can get past the mental five resistance, then you can turn off the regeneration five. And it's only a level four creature, so access to mental damage should be there. But if you're trying to just cast days at it, it might not be good enough. You might have to try harder. I gave it the the Ruchalix fly speed, but instead of having like a 25 or 30, it has a five. It has fangs and it has a fist, and it gets from the Ruchalic, it gets a version of the like Eldritch enzyme that it has, like this painful enzyme. But it can't do the same thing, so it's not as strong. The Ruchalix, it's it's like very painful. But for this one, if it bites you or if it, if it if it hits you with its not slam, its fist, then you deal with this. And while you have this poison in you, this occult poison. You become, you make a fort save. It's it's not a super tough fort save, and you become sickened from pain. But if you are sickened by this, while you are sickened by this condition, you cannot reduce your frightened condition at the end of your turn, which is going to come into play later, because then a normal vampire will grab you and it will drink your blood. This being the spawn of a Ruchalic, this doesn't have drink blood. It has consume fear. So. There's a few conditions you have to meet. It might be, it, it it reads complicated, but it's pretty simple. A creature has to be grabbed, paralyzed, restrained, or unconscious. Typical for a vampire, right? It has to be within the Ruspawn's reach. Typical. And the extra thing here is that the creature has to already be frightened. So if it is grabbed and it is frightened, the Ruspawn will violently rip the fearful thoughts out of the creature's head. They do have to make an athletic check because there is a, a bite happening here. And that's against the victim's Fort DC. As usual for one of these drained conditions, the victim will be drained one. But this also reduces the frightened value of the victim by one as it consumes those fearful thoughts. And then the Ruspawn regains five hit points with any excess HP being 
done as temper hit points. Now, since I put some extra conditions on this that, say, like a normal vampire spawn doesn't have to deal with, I instead made it so that the Rue spawn can continue to get HP this way, whereas a normal vampire spawn cannot. Hmm. And, of course, as usual, if the victim is already drained, the drain condition increases by one. And with a normal vampire, medicine will let you reduce the time on that drain condition but this is not a blood style vampire this is a vampire who pulls the fear out of your head in a violent way no 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 this one takes therapy to make it go away faster you have to have a calming conversation with a trusted friend or loved one which requires a 20 a dc 21 diplomacy check to reduce the drain condition by one after 10 minutes and then to go with this kit i did give it the fear spell at will just the first level version, but it can cast fear at will because it needs to get something frightened, right? That the the kind of secretion poison that it gets that doesn't frighten, but it keeps them frightened. So it does have to use fear as its bread and butter. It also has phantom pain on here, just in case it needs it. Maybe I don't need phantom pain on here, but I it kind of does need a damage dealer. Like I don't have a lot of damage dealing in it. And I gave it one use of the paranoia spell just because I thought that was really interesting. You know, to kind of foment the fear inside. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of very interesting ideas going on in this creature. Hopefully, not too many ideas, and hopefully, they all synergize. I love a synergy. That is my jam. I like it. Uh, it's a very big swing, and I like a lot of what's going on with it. There are some parts of it where I would want to like give it a closer look just to see if there's like a little bit of finessing that needs to be done just to make sure that it's not like just to make sure that its abilities combine in their intended ways mm -hmm. but i like mm -hmm. it a lot yeah i think there's some interesting things going on here i i would like to in fact i plan to give it another another look see if i can polish some few things i think you i think if you helped polish it it'd be pretty cool too because dear listeners we are going to take these creatures that we have made and we're going to put them in the discord in our patron patreon section so if you are a patreon subscriber for no direction and you have access to that discord server you can use the creatures that we have created here and hopefully you will like them and hopefully your players will be terrified of them please let us know if that is the case because it's time to move on dear listeners to your questions our first one comes from tanglefoot is there a point where it's better to just reskin an existing monster instead of making a whole new one? It's if it's for your home game, then I mean if the monster basically does what you want, it's probably better to reskin. You only need to change the parts that you want changed. And anything else that works the way that you want it to work for your game, why bother changing it? I agree completely. You know, it takes a lot of time to make a monster. I spent many more hours on making this Roospawn than I wanted to. And if I could have just done a reskin and it would have made for good radio, then I probably would have done so. At home, I would definitely just reskin if you can get away with it. Yeah. But if you do have to create a new one, go for it. Go ham. <laughs> make it awesome. Yeah. Brian Lane asks, at what level is it appropriate to introduce each of the various conditions on player characters? So conditions like clumsy, drained, stupefied, confused, doom, etc. 
you know, I went into this question at first, thinking that there would be a gradation, a gradient of conditions, where in the lower levels you see some that are more prevalent, and then at the higher levels this is where the more deadly ones come from. I did. I was looking through the conditions, and I didn't really get that feeling for very many of them. I think there's a few where they're more sparse at the lower levels. Like, you're not going to see a ton of doomed at the lower levels, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't use it there, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that it'd be bad. I guess the I guess the main thing is just to look for precedent in how these conditions have been used on other creatures, on the other ways that they've already been implemented, right? What's the duration on confusion? If you have a weird monster that's like low level and it just does like one round of confusion, that's not necessarily the worst thing. If you have a monster that says, all right, your PC over there makes a save or is confused for the rest of his life, then you know, you might not make that a level two critter, right? Yeah, look at, yeah, look at the durations, look at the degrees of success, look at whether or not things have the incapacitation trait. Uh, if there's any condition that you're curious about, honestly, just take confused or doomed or whatever, type it into archives of Nethys, change the search results to just display creatures, and then scroll through looking at what other creatures are doing around the level that you're looking at. And that is going to help to guide you of, you know, just like what other designers have been doing, where these things are in the system. But like the way that the degrees of success work in Pathfinder means that um, numbers from like debuffs or buffs don't scale in Pathfinder 2 the same way that they did in like Pathfinder 1. Mm-hmm. So like a mm-hmm. plus one bonus is still very powerful and still gives you a greater chance that your attack is going to be a critical hit, even at high levels. Like that plus one never becomes obsolete. So a negative one on a debuff never becomes obsolete. So like a player character who is frightened one at level one or frightened one at level 18, that's still presenting a challenge in the encounter. Mm-hmm. This next question is kind of bittersweet for for me because it comes from listener Luis, not co-host of Legend Lore Luis, listener Luis, who asks, my dear friend, he asks, do you have any tips on converting monsters over from 1E or other games? Yeah, converting monsters is uh, kind of my bag, so I love to do conversions, but the, the number one thing, the thing that you have to do right at the outset for every conversion is just stop focusing on the fact that it's a conversion. You can use the old creature as inspiration, but your top objective here should be creating a good creature in Pathfinder 2. It is less important to create a faithful conversion of whatever creature this is. Start fresh, discard what doesn't work in Pathfinder 2, and change things around until they do. Uh, Creature conversions are often going to involve reworking creature abilities so that they take advantage of Pathfinder 2's action economy, the degrees of success, the traits, and the creature building norms, particularly around uh, creatures having resistances or weaknesses, if they have immunities, if they have spell casting. You don't want to get too hung up on this creature used to cast uh, like 27 different spells in Pathfinder 1, so now the Pathfinder 2 version needs to have all 27 spells. Like, that's not important. Just focus on creating a creature inspired by the creature that you want to translate into Pathfinder 2, but 
focus on creating a creature that is a good Pathfinder 2 creature. I did convert. Well, on the fly, I was converting Reign of Winter mm-hmm. into Pathfinder 2nd Edition. And I was just I was just opening up the bestiary and saying, hey, this monster's close enough, but it is, you know, a giant ferret instead of whatever the bestiary said it is. Mm-hmm. I'd, yeah, I, if you need something that's not there, you got to do what Jess is saying. You got to just start from scratch, start from ground one. But if you've got to do like a whole adventure path worth of monsters and you ain't got the time, that's why you're playing an adventure path. I don't think there's anything wrong with just open up the bestiary and call in something, something else. Oh, yeah. Just if you're converting like an adventure path and it's just for your home game, find something that's close, reskin it. Not a big deal. Our last question then comes from the illustrious, beloved friend of No Direction, Mark Seifter, who asks, how can I create a monster that will impress in the RPG Superstar Contest? Wow, Mark. Yeah, I can see how you, Mark Seifter, would definitely want to create a creature that would impress in the RPG Superstar Contest. Mark Mark aims to win. <laughs> <laughs> no, Mark is, Mark is the head judge. Uh, and I'm also a judge of the RPG Superstar Contest. So submissions are going to be judged on four criteria. And all of them involve how many No Direction Legend Lore episodes you've listened to. That's correct. So there's the concept, the writing style, the mechanics, and the balance of your creature. The concept is going to be if your creature is original or if you're remixing an existing creature. Like if you're just doing a reskin, you probably don't want to submit that to the RPG Superstar Contest. So that wouldn't be a very original concept for your creature. Now you want to look at, does the creature fit into the RPG Superstar competition's theme for this year, which is an elemental theme. And you also want to look at if the concept of the creature just comes together overall. Does everything fit together? Do the abilities and the lore like meld? And does everything just make sense and feel good? For writing style, we're going to look at if the writing flows well, if the grammar is good, and if the entry just feels good to read. Uh, You might be penalized for things like typos or things like uh, grammatical mistakes or for uh, using a verb instead of a noun for your creature's strike. If your creature has a bite instead of a jaws strike, that might be something that would uh, keep your creature back from winning like the higher tier prizes. Uh, tying into that, uh, the creature being judged on mechanics. So this is going to be the Pathfinder 2 game rules. Does the creature use all of the correct rules, terms, and language? Uh, does it have cool special abilities? And then the threat balance is, uh, is the creature appropriate for the level that you made it? Is it balanced in a way that works well for the monster. The first time I saw that this year's theme was elements, I'm like, oh, great, this is going to be boring. It's like fire, earth, air, and water. By our powers combined, we form a a boring elemental contest. Except it's not like that. There's 20 elements in this one, right? Yeah. And some of them are kind of crazy. Yeah, so the elements for this year's RPG Superstar, uh, there's 20 of them. They are... 
Fire, water, earth, air, wood, ice, lightning, force, life, death, light, darkness, mind, spirit, body, music, metal, time, space, and poison. So you don't need to create like a, an elemental creature type to create a creature that has an element themed for the contest. And you can be creative with your combinations. You can make a fey with the time element. You can make an ooze with the music element. You can make a new hag that has the light element. Whatever it so is So mine that you could want, have whatever. been a mental vampire. Yeah. A mental element vampire. Ah, neat. Absolutely okay. a mental vampire with the mind or maybe even both the mind and spirit elements. Oh, yeah, that'd be real good, too. So another thing that you're definitely going to want to do when you are creating your monster, though, is uh, like Lauren and I were saying that we did when we created our creatures, you want to look through existing Pathfinder 2 creatures for precedent when you are choosing traits, weaknesses, resistances for creatures. You want to look at the creatures with the same creature type that you have. You want to look at examples for how to write creature abilities in the Pathfinder 2 style so that you can get your word choices and your phrasing correct. And you also want to use existing abilities from other creatures or from the universal monster rules where appropriate. Keeping the wording consistent helps the game master to know that this part of the game works the same. So it's good design to, um, to, to reuse the same wording that is used elsewhere in the system. Some people fall into a trap where they think that in order to prove that they have mastery of the system, they have to word it in a different way. Otherwise, they're copying and like it's not original enough. But the better thing to do, the better design, is to just take the same phrasing and copy it onto your creature. If it works the same, this it should read the same. This ain't novel writing. It's not plagiarism to use the same words. These are game rules. And keeping it all similar uh, keeps the game streamlined and makes it easier to play. Yeah. The last tip that I would say is uh, when you look at your creature, does it naturally inspire the reader to create encounters with it? Does the creature inform the reader what kind of role this creature plays and how they would use it in their game? Do the flavor and the mechanics match each other? If I'm reading the flavor of the creature and it describes it as something that lives like in the mountains, uh, do the abilities, the movement speeds, the vision, all, all those little little bits of the creature, do those things actually lend themselves to an encounter that takes place in the mountains? Or are the, because you, you want the, the lore and the actual execution in the game to work together. If the lore says that the creature is encountered in the mountains, you want it to be a creature that will make for a fun and memorable encounter that takes place in a mountain environment. Now, Jess, I'm going to put you a little on the spot here because I've got a question for you. See, these are all great advices. And any listener who can put all of this into one monster and submit it has a pretty good chance of doing well in the contest. If I'm not mistaken, I mean, there's like tons of, of winners that go into this contest. Just some more than some win more than others, right? Mm -hmm. So if you had to take one piece of advice, the one thing that the listener that the monster creator should absolutely nail down because this is the thing that will grab the judge's attention. 
What is that thing? It's difficult to pick just one thing. Uh, so I'm going to pick two things that are kind of the same thing. Um, you want to have a really strong concept. So whatever element it is that you are going with, pick something that gives you like a really strong, uh, like the way that the element combines with the rest of the creature that is like really cool and unique and that you're passionate about. So like start with a strong concept and make sure that the way that you execute that concept with the creature abilities and whatnot, uh, you want to take big swings the way that I said Lauren was taking some big swings with her creature. Because even if Lauren's creature needs to be finessed, finessing a creature that has a lot of really compelling ideas is much uh, more favorable than taking a creature that kind of like went too small and then amping it up and making it more interesting. You want to start with the really interesting ideas and then maybe they need to be uh, finessed a little bit to like get the balance on point or get the rules language on point. Like having everything would be better, obviously, but having that really compelling like seed at the heart of the idea of the creature. That is the thing that cannot be finessed after the fact. Super on point, super interesting, not a cliche or stereotype, right? Exactly. That's awesome. That's awesome. Have we created inspiration in you, or have we just let out our inner monsters? We're going to have to ask you to make like those monsters do and mash that subscribe button. I don't think we have a subscribe button. Make sure that you go to our Patreon then because that's all we have for you today. Check out the rest of our shows on the No Direction Network because if you like this show any of our, or any of our other blogs or shows, we do have the Patreon at patreon.com slash no direction because those patrons over there at patreon.com slash no directions, they're the one that make this possible and they're the ones that we cannot wait to share jess's awesome cat with and my big swing which i guess deserves no other accolades i think it's great i think it's great i'm <laughs> i think it's great too until next time i'm jess and i'm lauren Thanks for listening to Legend Lore, and as always, our rare incense was worth a total value of 300 GP. 